Last week, uh, I began the introduction of this series on how to love your family, and specifically, we talked about a communion of love, how the Trinity is in itself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this eternal communion of love. Uh, They love one another, they serve one another, they have respective roles, and yet this one God, this unity, is there in the Trinity. And then they expanded that by way of creation, making man and woman and eventually children to be a reflection of his glory, to expand that loving communion, to fill the earth, and in fact to fill the universe with that loving communion. But of course, sin interrupted that, sin disrupted that, sin tore that apart so that not only was there not love, but as a result, no communion, no community, uh, no unity. And so that brings, we stopped with the problem, and I want to take up this morning with the discussion of God's plan to fix that, to redeem that. And so we want to speak about the redemption of this communion. The work of the gospel is to restore what was taken away, to restore the love and communion that was lost in the fall and has been lost as a result of sin ever since. The Old Testament closes with these words, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And then in the opening of the New Testament, we find these words spoken to Zechariah by the angel who was telling him that his son, John the Baptist, would in fact be that predicted prophet. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and he... He will also, speaking of John, go before him, that is Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And then the angel quotes from this Old Testament passage in Malachi to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's the purpose of the gospel. At the very heart of God's redemptive covenant, the covenant of grace is the relationship between fathers and their children. This is not a footnote to God's plan for his people, but it is rather at the very heart. It is not only central to the immediate work of God in the lives of individual families, it is vital to the long-term perpetuation of the kingdom of God from generation to generation. And it is vital to a godly and healthy society. Remember he said at the close in the Old Testament that if this doesn't happen that the land would be cursed, that everything would fall apart. And so Malachi tells us that this is necessary to prevent the coming of the Messiah from being a woe rather than a blessing to men. This revival of familial faithfulness, this alone prevents him from coming to smite the land with a curse. According to Gabriel, this same reform is the appointed means to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. God's, this is God's way of promoting revival, to turn the hearts of parents to their children. 
Central to God's work is that He, in His kind providence, put you in a family and in this church to live in loving communion with one another, to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. That's what love is. And I've said this a number of times recently. I'm going to say it over and over and over till we get it in our bones that love is not just a sentimental feeling. It of, we often have sentimental feelings attached to our affections and loves. But at the core of biblical love is sacrifice, self-conscious sacrifice, thinking about it. How can I serve you? How can I do this? How can I be a better family member? How can I be a better father and husband and wife and mother and child? How can I be a better church member, a brother and sister, or brother or sister in Christ? What can I do today? Can I clean my room? Can I give words of praise and gratitude? Can I assist in some way to make this a, a place of love and communion? Am I adding to this, and am I making it more lovely and beautiful and harmonious, or am I taking away? Those are the only two options. There is no neutrality here. We're doing one or the other. We're making it better, or we're making it worse. It is immaturity, which is synonymous with selfishness, that kills and disrupts our marriages, our families, our churches, and indeed the world. Maturity, that is, self-denying sacrifice, real love, is what restores and unites our marriages, our families, our churches, and the world. Every Christian husband, every Christian wife, every Christian child must get these concepts deep down into their hearts because this is the ultimate goal. Again, not a footnote. This is central to what we're called to that the triune God is glorified and made manifest in your family by way of love and communion, which leads to my last, uh, which leads to my last point here, um, which is that there is no better evangelism, no better proclamation of the gospel than a family that lives in loving communion with each other. No better evangelism. No better proclamation of the gospel. Remember, it's important that we hear the gospel, but it's just as important that we see the gospel. This is an evangelism that happens first at your house with your family. Your children should be seeing the gospel, should be seeing the, the love of God, the triune God, this communion of love should be seen between husband and wife. It should be seen in their father and mother, and it should be something that is being inculcated into them. They are being instructed and disciplined and trained and taught how to love, how to give, how to sacrifice, how to be part of the community. That's what parenting is, and that's what evangelism is, because it necessarily involves Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins and, and the gospel. This is an evangelism, again, that happens first at your house, and then it's an evangelism that, like creation, spreads out from your house to the world. Matthew 5, 14-16, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And I want to apply that to your family. When the world looks at your family, when they look at your house, uh, do they see light? Do they see something different there in a positive way? Do they see love and do they see communion? Or do they have to call the cops? Now, I want to shift here and begin to talk about our marriages in particular, uh, husbands and wives, and how the application of this communion of love that we get from the triune God is to be manifest in that relationship. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and it is, therefore, the book of foundations. We learn something there. We learn a great deal there about God's design and plan for the world and for mankind. Husbands and wives are to reflect the image of God. Your marriage is the shadow of the reality. It is seen in two primary ways, first in creation and second in redemption. First, we were created to be his image bearers. We're to be the kings and the queens of creation. As image bearers, we are designed to reflect God himself. Not just to represent God, but we are his images. We are to reflect him. And thus, the triune God of loving communion said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God was expanding his own communion, his own community of love to us. And so Adam and Eve were originally in communion with God and with one another. Not only was the woman taken from the man, she was then brought to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed, this communion of love. It is clear that before sin entered the picture, there is now this extension, this expansion of the loving communion of God himself that now included man and woman, husband and wife. They were magnifying, they were glorifying God by this expansion, this visible uh, picture of God himself. This communion of body and spirit was designed by God also to produce something else. He had a mission for this husband and wife. Genesis 1, 27 through 28, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so this loving uh, and communing husband and wife, these two that had become one, were to expand the glory even further by filling the earth with more God-glorifying images of him, more God-glorifying, loving, communing image bearers. That was the goal. Fill up the earth. 
A certain kind of babies were to be produced from this covenant union with the goal of filling and ruling the earth. That was the mission of this husband and wife. And God reminded his people of this mission again at the close of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, where Malachi called them back to this original mission. He said, yet she, referring to the wife, is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Why did he do this? And he says, because he was seeking godly offspring. God bearer, God's image bearers. That's what To be godly is to be like God. And he, he said, I wanted you two to be one, joined in spirit, united in purpose, in covenant, in order to give me more image bearers that would glorify me in the earth. Now, the second way husbands and wives are to reflect the loving communion of God is observed in the work of redemption. This is seen in Christ, the perfect husband, and in the church, who is the bride of Christ. It's important to realize that our marriages are to be the reflection of the true and ultimate marriage. Our marriages are the metaphor, not the other way around. Sometimes we think that the marriage uh, is, is the true thing, our husbands and wives, and that somehow that's just an illustration or a metaphor for Christ and the church, but it's actually the other way around. We're the image bearers of the true thing. And so God gave detailed instructions, for example, of how to build the tabernacle and the temple, but the Bible tells us, for example, in Hebrews chapter 8, 1 and 2, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And so the tabernacle that we read about in the Bible with all of its details was a reflection, an image of the true tabernacle. And the priests that we see in the tabernacle were Images, shadows, if you will, of the true priest who is Christ. Also the same is true with the city of Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 2 through 3, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And so the earthly tabernacle, Jerusalem, and your marriage are all meant to reflect the true tabernacle, the true Jerusalem, and the true marriage. All of these are reflections of loving communion or community. And so, husbands and wives, these are not simply your marriages. They're God's. You are God's. Your marriage is God's. Your family is God's. And you owe Him allegiance. Those were all given to glorify Him. And He expects you to handle them with care. And He has called you in Christ to fulfill His mission of loving communion between husband and wife. He has called you to produce 
not just children, but godly children, who will expand that living communion to fill the earth with His glory. And so husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. That's the standard. He's the true husband. You're to imitate Him. Husbands, love your wives, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. You got that? This is the reason. You're leaving father and mother to get married. This is the reason you're doing that. You shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. In keeping with the clear teaching of Scripture, husbands represent Christ. They do so either truthfully or falsely. When they live in loving communion with their wives, they tell the truth about Christ. But some men might object that their wives are difficult to live with. And yet, it's the church that Christ himself lives with. And it would be hard to imagine a wife that is more difficult to live with than the church. Christ loves his bride in spite of her spots and blemishes. He is committed to making her more lovely and more lovable. He is committed to establishing and maintaining communion with her. That's why we come here week after week at his invitation to the Lord's table to commune, to be renewed in covenant with our groom. We is the bride. He does so by sacrificing himself for her, which is the very essence of love. I mean, the ultimate sacrifice, laying down his life for her. He gave himself for her, not just once, but constantly. Now, every government, every covenant has a head. Now, I want us to, we've talked about this before, but I want to remind you that a covenant is not a, really a thing. A covenant is about a relationship. And it, a covenant is what establishes a community. And that could be true of the state, it could be true of the church, and it's true of your family. God created marriage. God created the family. And as the creator, he defines the terms. He defines the various roles that we are to play. And to fulfill. Man, uh, men serve God as rulers in every covenant relationship, functioning as superiors 
who are responsible for the constituent members of that particular covenant. Now, we're not going to shy away and try to be from, from certain terms or try to be politically correct, but I do think it's important to be careful in defining our terms. So when we use words like superior, it's important that we distinguish. Definition says something is this and not that. So what do we mean that men are superiors? Well, they are not superior persons. They do occupy a superior position that carries with it greater duties and responsibilities. And, of course, men abuse this position frequently. They make assumptions about what it, what it means, and so they become tyrannical or selfish and, and take the, this position and misuse it. But the Bible says this position is to be used to glorify God and to reflect Him. And it is to be a position of service. It is God's plan under normal conditions that husbands are the covenant heads of households. As covenant heads, husbands have first a duty to honor God and obey God toward all those who are under their charge. I like to remind husbands that the best way to teach your wife how to be a wife is to recognize that first you're a wife because you're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the bride of Christ and you have a husband, Jesus Christ. And so as a member of the church, men, you have the opportunity to show your family what it looks like to be in submission to a husband, to be loving and respectful and obedient and committed you get to show that, not just talk about that, but demonstrate that by what kind of church member you are. Because there, you're a bride as well. And so, the honor uh, and obedience uh, are demonstrated, are, demonst are the demonstration of the husband's love for God. Having received his instruction from the Word of God, the godly husband then assumes the full responsibility for his household, instructing and disciplining. By that I mean insisting that God's Word be upheld in the family, both by his own words and example, but also by instruction, by training, and all of that for those under his care in the way of the Lord. He is the husbandman of the vineyard. The word husband provides this agrarian image. We speak of animal husbandry or the husbandman of a vineyard. And in Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34, we have a picture of what happens when such a husband simply neglects his responsibilities. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles, its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So this husband was slothful and he failed to take care of the vineyard that he'd been given. Neglect was all that was necessary for this to be unfruitful. 
And as a result, the vineyard is in ruin. And poverty falls. Disaster comes. And there are many such poverty-ridden households all around us, headed by husbands who have simply folded their hands, turned on the TV, taken a break, and not been diligent to care and cultivate the, care for and cultivate the vineyard. And the vineyard is in ruin. Poverty follows. While husbands are responsible for the vineyard that we call the household, it's important, husbands, that we remember we are not the owners. The household belongs to God. It is not yours to do with as you please. It is yours to please God with. God has simply made you the manager of His property. Remember, He wants you to give Him godly offspring. He's made you the manager of His property and given you the responsibility to make it productive. Matthew 21, 33-40 provides an excellent illustration of the relationship between the owner of the vineyard and the husbandman or the manager of the vineyard. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers, the husbandmen, and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dresser took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among, among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Now, I know this has a broader application to the nation of Israel, but I think it also has an application here to individual households where Jesus is to be Lord, where God is to be answered to, and where instead he is cast out, disregarded, even mocked. And as a result, we have the same kind of disaster. This parable of Jesus teaches us that husbands are under the authority of God's word. And when the owner of the vineyard, God sent word by his servants, the prophets, and ultimately his own son, these husbands not only rejected God's messengers, they sought to destroy them. So what place does the word of God have in your family? Is it prominent? Is it key? Are you most concerned to see to it that God's word is taught and established and applied in your household? Or is it set aside, disregarded? They did not want the owner telling them what to do. Husbands are those who have been given the responsibility of making the vineyard productive for the owner. Husbands are under God's authority. Husbands are obligated to receive the Word of God and to implement its instructions in the government of their household, their vineyards. When it comes to the covenant household, husbands represent God's interest and they will give an account to the owner for their stewardship of his property. Now, 
The husband's responsibility, notice I keep emphasizing duty and responsibility. He has a duty to God, but then he has a responsibility for those that are under his care. So to be the head is not to be uh, some kind of a prima donna, somebody that walks around uh, where everybody waits on him. It's quite the opposite. He's there to see to it that this vineyard does what it was created to do, and that is to be fruitful. He's there to love and to lead and to build communion, to make sure sin is kept out and dealt with, to make sure that this household is protected. Remember in the Proverbs, that wall had fallen down. This man keeps the wall up. He keeps the household protected from those things that would destroy the family. And so nothing concerning the household is outside of his authority. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. What kind of Savior are you? Are you saving your family? Are you bringing redemption to your family? Are you giving them what they need to do the right thing, to grow and to mature into a loving community. The husband can run, but he can't hide. He is responsible for his wife, his children, his property, and everything else that falls under the domain of his household because it is all an extension of him. When his wife fails, he has failed. When his children fail, he has failed. When they succeed, he has succeeded. If there are any problems in the household, they are his problems. He al- he's always responsible to the chief lover, to be the chief lover and the chief promoter of communion. Husbands may not, like Adam, shift the blame as he did to the, as he spoke to God to the woman you gave me, which was really his way of shifting the blame to God. God, if you hadn't done this. I wouldn't be in this mess. He should conduct regular inspections of his vineyard, observing his wife, recognizing her needs, providing instruction and encouragement, talking to and listening to his wife so that he'll have understanding, dwelling with them, as Peter says, in an understanding way, giving honor to his wife. She's a gift of God. The two of you are one. She's there given as a companion and your wife by covenant. She is your helper. She's part of the mission. To do otherwise is to fall asleep and to fold the hands. It is important for husbands to notice specifically how Christ does this so that they can self-consciously engage in the same activities that Jesus does. Ways, here are some ways to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Self-sacrifice, provision, obviously earning a living and providing for material things, but also other types of provision. Washing with the Word, that is feeding, which means you have to be first a student. Are you a student of God's Word? Are you diligently bringing the Word of God into yourself so that you have something to give, so that you can instruct in wisdom? 
You can't do that if you haven't been a student first. Love her like you love yourself, the text says in Ephesians. Don't you protect yourself? Don't you look after yourself? Nourish and cherish. That's physical, emotional, and spiritual. You pay attention to the other people around you. Not just when things are falling apart, but God knows what we need before we ask or think. Uh, Or He gives above and beyond all we ask or think, but He knows before we ask. Do you know what your family needs before they ask because you're paying attention? Or do you have to wait until the house is burning down before you realize there's a problem? What about goals and objectives? Jesus has the goal of presenting a bride that is spotless and without blemish, a glorious bride. How about fruitfulness? To be responsible for something is not a privilege or an excuse to neglect it or abuse it. The quality of the husband's oversight will be seen in the fruit that is produced by the household. The wife and the children are extensions of the husband. He is the head and they're the body. When he provides for their good, the whole household benefits, covenant blessings. And when he fails to provide godly instruction and discipline, the whole household suffers. There are covenant curses. Now we're going to, of course, get to wives and what their duties and responsibilities are and to children. It's not that they have no culpability and no obligations to add to this communion of love, but it starts here at the top. The behavior of wives and children are... Reflections of the husband's rule. Proverbs 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Uh, But she who causes shame is like rottenness to his bones. They're they're connected. So if she's good, if if she looks good, he looks good. If she looks bad, he looks bad. Proverbs 28.7, whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. When love is central to the husband's relationship to his wife, the household is a beautiful place to be because it will be a place of communion. Well, I think this is a good place to stop here. I'll next week begin to talk about wives and their role in this loving communion. But husbands, I want to end today by asking you to think about some particular way or a few ways, two or three things that you can do to make things better at your house. I would like to recommend a practice, uh, I think at least a weekly practice, is that you sit down with your family, if it's just husband and wife, or if you still have children, uh, depending on their ages, to sit down and to ask this question, and you take the lead, how can I make your life easier and better and make this place uh, a more lovely place to be. What am I doing that's creating a problem? And what could I do more of that would make things better? What could I do less of that would make things better? I'll go first and then listen. Well, Dad, 
or husband, and then listen and encourage that. And then go around the room and everybody will get to ask that question of themselves. And it's amazing that doing that, in a, on a, what I like to say, do that on a sunny day, not right after you had a quarrel. Okay? It's not a good time at that point to get everybody in the room and try to do this. But you know, if you say, we've done this on Sunday evenings where we just say we're going to sit down and take a few minutes to do this and to talk about the upcoming week and how can we make this a happier place. And you find that if you do that, if it's on your schedule to do that, I'm giving you a very practical thing you can do here that I think will make a big difference in your family. If you do that, then you'll find that you don't necessarily have to wait till next week to have that meeting. You'll actually learn to talk to each other as you go and solve problems as you go and not have to wait till something uh, boils over. So you learn to commune uh, on a regular basis, to to talk, to communicate, and to listen. And so when we take that approach of all of us are going to try to find a way we can make this a better place, then little by little, and it's always the little things that start to make a difference. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us families. Help us, Lord, to make those families places that, in, that truly reflect your glory. Help us to be husbands that show forth the love of Christ, the way Christ loved the church. And so I pray for every husband here and every future husband here that you would make us the chief lovers and the chief servants in our households, that we might glorify you. Bless us now as we prepare for worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.